Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Tim Anderson. He's a professor and a lead uh, in the program in disease intervention and prevention at Texas Biomedical Research Center in uh, San Antonio. So, Tim, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Uh, very well, thank you. Yeah. Well, tell me about your, your work in the program. Uh, what, what's your research about? So I work on the intersection between sort of genetics, evolutionary biology, and tropical diseases. Uh, I specifically work on uh, uh, the two most important of uh, uh, parasites infecting humans. So I work on malaria, vector-borne protozoan, uh, and I work on schistosomes, so blood flukes with a snail intermediate host. Uh, and I'm, I'm interested essentially in using uh, current genetic and genomic approaches to better understand transmission of these parasites, to, uh, uh, to better understand how drug resistance evolves, how many times it evolves, uh, how we can identify the genes involved in resistance, how we can develop uh, resistance-proof uh, interventions against these parasites. So I hope that gives you uh, an idea. Yeah. Well, I guess um, there's a lot of parasites out there. Are you focusing on parasites that we'd encounter in the U.S. or only in Africa? Like, which ones are you focusing on? So I focus on parasites uh, that currently don't occur in the U.S., but uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, in the last century, malaria was extremely common in the U.S., particularly in, in Texas, and was a major cause of mortality. Uh, nowadays, uh, that's not true. So nowadays, malaria and schistosomiasis are, are distributed in the tropics, uh, but they are still incredibly widespread. They are still an enormous drag on economic growth. Uh, and uh, so really a, a major focus for, for medical research. So within malaria, the, um, it comes from mosquitoes, right? What's, what's the particular mosquito that, uh, that you know, bites someone and causes them to get it? To get it? Uh, so they're Anopheline mosquitoes. And, and we actually do have Anopheline mosquitoes in the U.S. that will transmit malaria. Uh, so they are still here. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, the, there is still the ability for, for transmission to occur in the states. So is there any transmission in the states? Is it just a very uh, low level? Like what is really, it, 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 it's uh, at the moment, no. There are occasional outbreaks have been reported from people getting off airplanes or, or from mosquitoes hitching a ride uh, with a yeah with with a with a bunch of flowers or something and then biting people in a florist shop uh, and you have a small cluster of malaria cases but then it dies out uh 
So really, there is no endemic malaria, just very occasional uh, flare-ups from importation. Okay. And then, um, so when a, a mosquito, you know, gets a blood meal from someone, what does the, uh, the parasite look like? Is it a, like a single-celled organism? Is it a, it's not a worm, it's just like a single-celled bacteria in malaria? Uh, well, it's not a bacteria. It's a protozoan. Uh, so, yeah, single-celled protozoan, eukaryote organism like ourselves. Uh, so, well, I can take you through. Uh, essentially, in the blood stage, uh, these are parasites of, of red blood cells. And uh, so they essentially eat hemoglobin. Uh, they will divide over a two-day period and then burst out of these red blood cells. And each parasite will then invade a new red blood cell. Uh, so, yeah, so, so just through essentially eating hemoglobin, uh, you, can, you can reach populations of 10 to the 11 parasites in the bloodstream. So enormous numbers and enormous capacity for adaptation to drugs or, or whatever we throw at them. So these, yeah, in the bloodstream, they're asexual parasites, but they produce a few uh, sexually differentiated male and female forms that then can be taken up by a, a mosquito that feeds. And in the mosquito, these uh, male and female gametes fuse, and they actually, so blood stage parasites are haploid, but these haploid uh, gametes fuse to form a, a diploid stage in the mosquito. And then you have meiosis and you have recombination. And once again, you regenerate then recombined haploid stages, which migrate to the salivary glands and can be inoculated into another human. Uh, and there the, the, the cycle starts again. So by the time someone feels symptoms of malaria and sickness, what's the... Uh the protozoan load in their blood, how many parasites? Uh, well, again, protozoan load is normally quite high when people feel symptoms. And so symptoms are closely correlated uh, with, with burdens. Uh, but if you have, well, if you have a, a million or a billion parasites inside you, you are, you are going to start to, to feel sick. Uh, but it's also important to, to point out that there is an enormous number of people uh, with malaria, say in, in many African locations, where people have malaria parasites in their blood, but they are asymptomatic. So they are out there playing football, doing all the normal things people do, but they have parasites in their blood and they can transmit malaria. Uh, so one of, the, yeah, one of the big questions is trying to understand why people get sick uh, and why sometimes malaria is asymptomatic, why sometimes uh, it causes horrible symptoms. Again, it's the same sort of question we're now talking about with, with coronavirus. Well, um, so I would guess that someone, um, you know, gets the malaria parasite in them and then mosquitoes, you know, don't just magically stop biting them. Uh, so I'm sure naive mosquitoes bite them, you know, get the parasite back and even infected ones bite them, reintroduce more parasite and I, I, has there been any study of that? How many times, how many infections a typical person may may get with malaria? And does that change the nature of the disease? Like, you know, if I only get, you know, bitten by one mosquito and I, I end up with malaria, will I fare differently from someone else that's been bitten like 10 times and the parasite's been reintroduced multiple times from different uh, mosquito hosts? 
Uh, actually, that, that's a question that, that my lab is extremely interested in. We can use genetic tools. Essentially, you can take a blood sample from an infected person and you can either sequence or use other genotyping methods and you can count how many different uh, genetic variants there are at different uh, different loci within the parasite so you can you can start to get estimates of how many different infections are present uh, within infected humans uh, and nowadays actually with uh, single cell approaches uh, I have a colleague who has really pioneered single cell approaches to malaria parasite work. You can, you can sequence individual parasites by sorting uh, red, infected red blood cells into different wells of a plate. And so you can sequence individual genomes and you can directly count the number of variants present. He's found uh, a, a, around 20 different variants within individual patients. Uh, and we also know, uh, just from sort of epidemiological work, you can count how many infective bites people receive in a single night, uh, essentially by, by catching all the mosquitoes that land on people, uh, then uh, essentially measuring whether those mosquitoes are infected. And you find that in some locations, in really intense transmission in, in places like Tanzania, uh, you can have 40 infective bites per night. Uh, whereas, yeah, in, in other locations, the, the, the place I work on the, uh, the Thailand-Myanmar border, uh, it, it's, it's more like one infective bite every year. So you see dramatic differences in, in rates of infection in different locations. And that actually appears to be really important in driving uh, different patterns of disease that you see. Uh, so perhaps I'll- you, um, How do people in you know, uh, the, the Myanmar border that get bitten once a year, how do they fare versus people that are like, you know, feasted upon all night you know, 40 and 50 times? Does the disease look any different? Uh, well, paradoxically, the, uh, if- Yes, sorry. Yeah, sort of paradoxically, uh, people who get bitten very seldom get extremely ill with malaria. Uh, So what seems to be happening is there is no sterilizing immune response against malaria, but, but there is sort of partial immunity that keeps numbers of parasites down. So in the Thai Myanmar border, where people are sort of have an infected bite once a year, uh, in between times, their immune system forgets about malaria. So each time they get an infective bite, they get very heavy, heavy parasite burdens. They get extremely ill, and uh, they yeah they need to be treated, or, or very often they will die. In Africa, on the other hand, when you when these people have been bombarded by infective bites. Their immune system is constantly primed. They can actually maintain uh, low levels of parasitemia that are, are sort of fairly asymptomatic. Uh, and uh, yeah, so, so as a result, uh, there's, there's very different patterns of disease. Low transmission, you get high levels of disease. Uh, and when you have high transmission, you still do get a lot of disease. So in Africa, it's uh, sort of young kids who tend to die from malaria because they haven't 
being exposed. They get exposed, they get really sick, and if they're lucky, they survive, and they they then, uh, yeah, uh, but but on the other hand, uh, many people die in Africa from, from malaria. So it's a sort of it's a sort of U-shaped relationship where there's high mortality when there's really high transmission, and there's also uh, high mortality when there's low transmission. Uh, so right, and different yeah. factors are acting at both ends of the curve. Yeah. Um, so for a typical, well, a typical infected person, how many different variants of malaria will be in them, and how different are the variants amongst themselves? You know, if you sequence them. Yep. Are you seeing, you know, can you tell, all right, oh, th these four variants uh, will probably be resistant to these drugs and these variants are, you know, very different, et cetera? So, well, actually, yeah, so I mentioned my colleague who can now do single cell sequencing. Uh, so he is able to actually look at the relatedness between individual parasites within an infection. And you can clearly see that many of those parasites are actually uh, closely related. They are uh, from the same infective mosquito bite. You can see they are essentially equivalent to brothers and sisters. Uh, you also see completely unrelated uh, parasites indicating that they have been inoculated from a different mosquito. So you can actually use patterns of variation to infer uh, how transmission has occurred, whether these variants have been inoculated from one mosquito uh, and they're sort of meiotic uh, products from a single mosquito or whether they're from, from different mosquitoes. Uh, one of the interesting things are relevant to a question you asked earlier. Uh, even though we see very high levels of transmission in African locations, and we certainly see multiple different parasites within people. Very often, we see related parasites within people uh, in Africa, uh, suggesting that uh, really uh, that infection is dominated by parasites inoculated from a, a single mosquito. Well, if uh, they reproduce asexually, that would mean that if I'm infected by malaria, I have I don't know, ten different variations of it that. Essentially, those probably would represent competing populations to infect me and take hold, right? Uh, can you rephrase that? Yeah, so, you know, let's say, again, I have uh, two different variations of malaria inside of me. You know, I've been bit by a mosquito, and they're asexually reproducing, so they're not mixing. The two variants are not mixing and combining and making a third variation. They're staying these two separate lines. So when they're within me, is there a competition? You know, like variant A wants to dominate over variant B. And so they're reproducing like crazy and trying to beat out variant B. And variant B is doing the same thing with A. You, you know, just like you'd have like a, a heterogeneous tumor, it seems like you have a heterogeneous infection of multiple different kinds. Again, that may be competing and the asexual reproduction keeps them separate. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. That's absolutely true. So when you have, you can actually measure how genotypes are competing, uh, essentially by just measuring frequencies of those different genotypes over time. Uh, and we can do that, you know, you can do that in patients or you can do that in the lab. You can grow parasites in the lab and measure competition between different genotypes. And particularly, we know there are factors 
that uh, strongly influence competitive ability. Drug resistance genes tend to carry a big fitness cost. So when there is no drug treatment, those, uh, those resistant parasites actually lose out to uh, wild-type parasites. Uh, and we can actually see that in, in the field uh, when chloroquine treatment was stopped in, in uh, Mali or in Malawi, uh, you could see that the frequencies of resistance genes dropped rapidly over a 10-year period until wild-type parasites, again, were 100% of the population. Uh, so that's just, just showing strong fitness cost of, of these resistance alleles. So treating someone with a malaria drug may not directly uh, kill the parasite, but it may cause them to, to change genetically so they're less able to infect you, the host. You know, if I take a malaria drug like chloroquine, the chloroquine, are you saying it may, it may not work by killing the parasite inside me? It may work instead by altering the parasite so that it's fighting off the chloroquine and now it can't do as good of a job as infecting me because it's busy with that. And so it's, it's less able to do its, its job and proliferate, infect me and, and kill me. So, well, so certainly when you, you treat a patient with chloroquine, then those parasites that carry mutations conferring resistance will spread and they will outcompete the wild type parasites. However, when you remove chloroquine pressure, those resistant parasites are uh, at a, a big disadvantage. And certainly in Africa, we see that they, uh, they disappear over time simply because they are not competitive uh, without chloroquine pressure. So in analyzing how these drugs affect malaria, you can't just say it's anti-malarial. You have to correlate it with the specific strains to see which strains are most amenable to the drug's action, right? Uh, that's, that's exactly the case. So, uh, yeah, one of the big uh, reasons for trying to understand drug resistance is it means we, we can essentially, we can genotype parasites from people's blood, we can understand whether a particular drug will, will work in a, a particular location, simply from the frequency of infections containing uh, resistance genes. Uh, and that's using those kind of molecular approaches is far quicker than doing big clinical trials to see whether people get cured or not. So, uh, uh, yeah, so, so essentially, yeah, by, by genotyping parasites, we can get a, a, a pretty good profile on, on which drugs they are resistant to. Uh, and certainly nowadays, uh, in the place where I work in Southeast Asia, uh, parasites are actually have resistance to, uh, uh, to five major uh, compounds that we've used to treat them over the years. So is there a profiling? Um, is there a, a list of the variants that have been observed in the past and which drugs they're, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're susceptible to? I mean, now malaria treatments probably should be a cocktail. I would think that, you know, when someone's sick, you'd try to sequence their parasites, look at the load of each, and then prepare a cocktail that's specifically, you know, concocted to uh, get rid of those variants and their predominance. That, that's pretty well what we do. It's slightly 
are less personalized than that. Uh, we can really just identify different locations of the world and we can profile the parasite populations in those regions. And so we can say in Southeast Asia, we'll use, or in on the Thai-Myanmar border, we'll use a particular combination. In Cambodia, we might use a slightly different combination. And in Africa, we might use a, a different combination again. So you can certainly, uh, uh, yeah, you, you can identify combinations that work in different locations, uh, but it's becoming increasingly difficult. Well, what, so how does this resistance arise? What's the mechanism for that? Uh, well, mechanism, like all resistance, uh, is mutation and, uh, and selection. So I mentioned earlier on, we can have 10 to the 11 parasites in a single infected person. Uh, that's a lot of parasites, and every time these are replicating, there will be, say, one in 10 to the 9 or 10 to the 10 bases will be incorrectly copied. And so when you sum that up within every single infected person, uh, you will have a 100 different mutations at every position in the genome being generated. So, so really, there's all the raw material for then selection getting to work uh, and uh, and selecting mutations resulting in resistance. But, uh, can you watch drug resistance happen during an infection, or is it it's just a surviving uh, variant and the resistance? Actually, what does it develop? Yeah, you you can certainly well you can't watch it so much happening during an infection, but over time you can watch resistance uh, alleles spreading. Uh, through a population. So, for example, we have uh, documented uh, a complete selective event from the origin of resistance mutations to spread of artemisinin resistance to around 95% frequency on the Thai-Myanmar border. And that happens over a period of uh, just 15 years. So things can happen really quickly. It, it's not quite like HIV or other viral infections where you can really document within a single infection uh, resistance alleles arising and spreading through an infection. Uh, and in fact, one of, the, one of the things my lab has been really interested in is trying to understand how many times resistance actually evolves. Uh, in that, you know, if resistance evolves very commonly, then you need quite complicated drug cocktails to prevent it from uh, uh, being able to arise. But if it, if it arises really rarely, then the problem may be slightly easier to deal with. Uh, and I mentioned to you before that, yeah, we have enormous numbers of parasites, enormous numbers of mutations uh, that potentially can arise. However, when we look at resistance to uh, pyrimethamine or to chloroquine, we actually see there's remarkably few independent origins of resistant uh, alleles. So high-level resistance to, to pyrimethamine, which is a, a drug that uh, attacks the folate synthesis pathway, that occurred just once and spread right across Southeast Asia. And then that resistance mutation uh, hopped over into sub-Saharan Africa and spread across uh, sub-Saharan Africa. So, yeah, we see a sort of quite 
few origins of, of, of resistance alleles. So, uh, again, what does resistance look like? If, I, if a drug, like, all right, first of all, what are the mechanisms by which um, the drugs fight malaria? Do they, you know, cause the, uh, the protozoan membrane to open up and to burst? I mean, what? and then when they become resistant, what happens? Are they making, like, uh, efflux pumps like bacteria do? Like, yep. you know, what does this look like? Uh, so it happens in several different ways. So I mentioned the drug pyrimethamine. So that is a competitive inhibitor of uh, a, 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 an enzyme in the, the folate synthesis pathway. Uh, these parasites need folate uh, to grow. Uh, and yeah, so you treat with, with this drug and they are no longer able to make make folate, they can't grow. Uh, so the mutations that occur in this, uh, in this enzyme, and there's, there's an, four different mutations that occur with the increasing levels of resistance, uh, they once again, they, they, they prevent the drug from effectively binding. Uh, and so the parasite once again can make folate and, uh, uh, and can survive drug treatment. So okay. this is a case where you're interfering with the uh, ability of parasites to, to essentially make nutrients, and uh, uh, they, they have a workaround simply by changing, changing the enzyme. In the case of chloroquine, uh, chloroquine, well, when, when parasites, parasites eat hemoglobin uh, and they digest that, uh, and when they digest it, they make toxic side uh, sort of uh, uh, byproducts, uh, heme. Uh, and that heme is polymerized, uh, pol- polymerized into a non-toxic form by, the, by these parasites. So chloroquine essentially prevents polymerization of these waste products. So, so parasites die in their waste products. And... Yeah, so so that's a, another example of introduce uh, of interfering with uh, sort of uh, with nutrition. Uh, in the case of artemisinin, uh, parasites uh, again, it's to do with hemoglobin digestion. Uh, the drug artemisinin, uh, which is currently the major drug used for malaria, it kills uh, parasite. Well, the drug is activated by the byproducts of hemoglobin digestion, and then it it kills parasites using free radicals. And so what parasites do, resistance involves a gene that's involved in in uptake of hemoglobin. Uh, And so mutations in this gene prevent hemoglobin from being taken up in in large amounts. The drug is not activated. It then doesn't kill, kill those parasites. When um, when malaria enters into a red blood cell, does the red blood cell still function normally at all? Does it take up oxygen? Does it you know then provide it to cells, or is it just kind of a zombie that goes throughout the circulatory system but now doesn't uh, do its job anymore? Uh, yeah, it, essentially the parasite enters red blood cells and it completely remodels uh, the red blood cell uh, to suit itself. So those parasites really become uh, uh, just uh, mobile stores of hemoglobin for the parasite to eat through. Uh, they no longer, I don't actually know whether, whether they can still carry oxygen. I imagine when the hemoglobin is gone, they cannot. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, I just I just wonder if they still participate in their normal jobs or again they they uh, you know. What about um in the spleen? Have people looked at uh, people's spleens when they had malaria? And I guess the spleen is the uh, the eater of no longer working blood cells. Uh, maybe there's a lot of activity there. I think there's a great deal of activity there. That's not actually my field. I know that when parasites actually or, or infected red blood cells go through the spleen, uh, the spleen will actually pick out parasites from those infected red blood cells and kind of reseal those blood cells. It's amazing that it does that, but huh. Yeah. Okay. So what, um, where are you trying to make headway here, you know, in terms of drug resistance? Is it really on the understanding of it or is it uh, the creation of new drugs? I mean, what's, what's your end goal? So we, well, I think several goals. We'd like to, uh, as I mentioned, better understand evolution of drug resistance. So we're interested as well in, in the, yeah, the, the idea we talked about earlier about fitness costs of drug resistance genes and yeah, how parasites get around those fitness costs. Uh, so I mentioned that parasites in Southeast Asia may have resistance to multiple different antimalarials, and each one of those uh, resistance alleles will carry a cost in terms of fitness. So you wonder, how, how do they actually manage to survive at all? Uh, there's a lot of work in the bacterial field showing that when resistance alleles arise, there are then there is compensatory evolution elsewhere in the genome that will help to restore fitness uh, to those resistant bacteria. Uh, so one of the things my lab is extremely interested in is trying to understand whether whether compensatory mutations also occur uh, in malaria parasites. Uh, and yeah, we have several ways to look at that now. Uh, Nice thing about malaria is we can actually now keep the uh, the whole life cycle in the laboratory. So this is a, a human parasite, and the only way to actually use the, the human part of the life cycle previously was either to grow parasites in flasks or uh, use chimpanzees. Uh, chimpanzees are no longer allowed, uh, but we can now make humanized mice with human livers. So we can infect mosquitoes. We can have those mosquitoes inoculate these mice. Uh, we can have the parasites go through the liver stage of the life cycle and enter the bloodstream. Uh, and we can then take, uh, take the blood from that mouse. We can put those parasites into culture. And yeah, so we can really keep the whole thing going. That means we can actually now do genetic crosses in the laboratory. And we have excellent collaborators in Seattle uh, that conduct these crosses. So we can actually now pinpoint genes involved in drug resistance or involved in uh, compensation, in growth of parasites. So we can really get a better idea of the, of the different genes that are involved in developing a drug resistant parasite. Uh, so we're very excited about that. Um, do these parasites, these protozoa, can they experience epigenetic changes? Are they able to alter their, alter their uh, gene expression? 
Uh, they, they certainly can, and there's good examples of epigenetic changes in expression of variant surface antigens on the surface of plasmodium. Uh, so certainly epigenetics is important. Uh, in terms of drug resistance, it appears that most of the changes we see are hardwired genetic changes involved, uh, involved in, with, with sequence changes. Uh, are epigenetic changes responsible for any drug resistance, or is it just uh, it's at the gene level only? Uh, well, I think I think it's early days. Um, I think some people would say yes. I'm inclined to say that the vast majority of drug resistance is is hardwired genetic changes in DNA. Okay. Well, very good, uh, Tim. What's the best way for people to find out more about your research and keep tabs? Uh, I can certainly provide. Uh, a website, uh, and I suggest searching on PubMed for mm. Tim Anderson, Malaria, and Texas Biomed, uh, and that will give them what they need. Okay, excellent. Well, Tim, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Okay, you're very welcome. So we didn't actually get on to the other parasite that I work on. That's a pity. Well, well, that just means that if you're up for it, I'll, I'll have you back and we can talk about the next one if you're okay with it. <laughs> sure, I'm, I'm happy with that. Okay. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.